I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. So it turns out the key to a great conversation, book a comedy writing presidential speechwriter as your guest. That's what we have for you today. David Litt worked in the Barack Obama White House as special assistant to the president and senior presidential speechwriter. Those are awfully formal titles, and David seems like he's anything but awfully formal. What he is, is awfully funny and smart. He wrote many of President Obama's funniest bits, from correspondent dinner speeches to his happy 90th birthday shout-out to actress Betty White. David also knows policy and wrote serious speeches on issues like immigration and race. To mangle a line from his book where David's describing somebody else, he's the speech-writing equivalent of a two-way player. David is now head writer and producer for Funny or Die's Washington, D.C. office. But more immediately, and relevant to David's personal interests, he's author of the new book, Thanks, Obama, My Hopey, Changey White House Years, A Speechwriter's Memoir. It's a great read, and you'll really like the book. Here's why. First, it's funny. But the guy's a comedy writer. I'm not going to lie. I expected it to be funny. A book by a comedy writer better be funny. But more than funny, the book reveals David's stories, his sharp eye about the White House and President Obama. Not look at me saving democracy and the future of the world stories. Human stories. I came away from the book feeling like I understood working in the White House and President Obama better. Finally, and I asked David about this, his book and David himself are not cynical in the least about the positive role government can play and the high honor that comes from working in public service. At a time when cynicism seems to know no bounds, especially about government and politics, it was really nice to read a book by someone who knows government isn't perfect, but it's a cause worth joining. Before I begin with David, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. As always, though, if you don't like the conversations, please forget I ever mentioned it. That's it. Here's my conversation with David Litt. David, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's good to be here. So to get right to the core of your book, which, of course, uh, if I were to, you know, really boil it down, is about your tight, personal and deep relationship with Barack Obama. Is it fair to say that your relationship with the president, a serious, thoughtful global leader, was established because you knew the theme song to Golden Girls? <laughs> well, uh, I will say it's not like this is a book about knowing the president uh, personally every day. We weren't constantly buddies and hanging out, but yeah. we definitely got much, much closer than I ever thought I was going to be with Barack Obama. I will say that. And it is true that the first time I was in the Oval Office, I had a meeting. My job was to help the president record a 90th birthday greeting for Betty White, the actress. And uh, I messed up basically everything I was supposed to do, uh, made a complete fool of myself and was sure that my White House career was as good as finished. And then at the end of the meeting, uh, at the end of the taping, the president was supposed to bob his head in time to the theme music from The Golden Girls, uh, Betty White's most popular show. And he stopped us and he said, well, hang on a second. If I'm going to bob my head in time to the music, I need to know how the music goes. Does anyone here know the Golden Girls theme song? Cue David Litt. Yes, this was I, – I had this moment. I'm standing in the Oval Office and suddenly I know what I can do for my country. 
And I looked our commander in chief in the eye and I said, bump, 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 bump. Thank you for being a friend. Bump, 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 bump. And, and he kind of seemed into it. So I kept going. And that's when he gave me a look that's like, OK, this is the president's time here. But uh, but that one thing that I did uh, at the end that went right. Um, so he bobbed his head in time to the music and I, I left my first ever Oval Office meeting. I was 25 years old and I, I felt like it had been a a qualified success as opposed to a unmitigated disaster. It was a great story. I, I, I assume, by the way, that you were on key. I mean, you're singing for the commander in chief, and and we've heard him sing, uh, and we heard you know we've heard him do Amazing Grace. I, I, I assume that you were on key. Uh, no, I was on what <laughs> what would be on key for me, which would be atrociously out of tune for you know anyone else. Okay. Yeah, it was. I didn't know at the time that President Obama actually could sing pretty well, or I would have been even more intimidated than I was. Yeah. Well, anyhow, you, you, you got the job done, um, and it's, it's a great story. There's also the, the detail in there about the two uh, – I mean, you really did think through every possible outcome, most of which, you know, he, as he corrected you on needing two cards, and we can leave it to the readers to, to hear that part of the story. But uh, having spent time listening to the soundtrack, listening to the song Golden Girls, um, it, it paid off. And, and also, I should just point out, I mean, I, I was teasing you a bit that the book is about, uh, you know, is about your close personal relationship with uh, Barack Obama. You make it very, very clear that, you know, that, uh, you know, you certainly had a relationship with him. Uh, but, but you know, he's not calling you every day and checking on fantasy football, you know, scores and that sort of thing. No, which I will say I'm almost as bad at fantasy football as I am at uh, singing on key. So I'm glad <laughs> for his sake he wasn't doing that. Okay, well, um, what, for for our sake though, what you are among the things you are good at is is comedy, and you've done it. And and we shouldn't shortchange it. And we won't. We'll talk about some of the serious stuff too. I mean, you 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 really got to run the gamut. You 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 know did the comedy thing and and wrote humor uh, with the president and for the president. Um, but you also obviously, you know, went deep into issues and, and wrote about that as well um, on the comedy front. So you, you served up close to one of these and you've practiced the other. Um, how is being president like improv comedy? Well, I think uh, being president, I suppose, <laughs> is a lot more difficult than improv comedy. I think the interesting thing about comedy is it ends up giving you windows into much more high stakes jobs. So for example, um, you know, in watching and thinking about in the improv world, if people are thinking about not just one step down the road, but what are the patterns? How do you make a snap decision? Those sorts of experiences actually helped me as a presidential speechwriter. The question that improv comedians ask themselves is, if that, then what else? So I could ask that in a speech and try to continue moving down the road of saying, okay, if this argument makes sense, then what else can we say? Um, and I think the same was true with President Obama and jokes. There were moments in the joke writing process where I got these little windows into the way that he exercised his judgment or the way he thought about the dynamic between powerful and power, powerless people. And I got to see that in this lower stakes way, but it played out in all of the high stakes decisions he made as president. That's one of the things I wanted to write about. What give me an example? I mean, some of the examples that come to my mind from the book. I mean, there's obviously the uh, um, the Passover speech that uh, that you wrote, and he, you know, he summed up Passover in in eight words. But but any examples that you're thinking of that uh, come to mind about uh, the the window into his judgment? Yes, absolutely. So one example is I talk about we did a taping 
for a, a little short piece that was going to go at the beginning of a correspondence dinner monologue. And I was the extra. My job was to say, Mr. President, they're ready for you. And I did a terrible job of it. The moment I'm reading a line, I, I can do improv, but the moment I'm reading a line, I fall apart. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward I, line, David. It's you know, I, <laughs> you know, you think that, but I'm just saying you try delivering that line with the president of the United States uh, sitting to your left. You may discover it's it's more complicated than you thought. All to- sorts of inflections come come to your mind. Totally fair point. Totally fair. So so go ahead. Yeah. So so, so you're practic- you're, yeah. you have to deliver that line. Yeah, so I deliver my line not well, but President Obama delivers his lines, and honestly, they also were okay, but not great. Um, and I was a little bit worried because it's the president. You don't have a lot of time. We only had two takes. And then the second take, it was like President Obama had been practicing for a week. It, and I know he wasn't. I was in the room with him the entire time, but somehow he was able to really quickly grasp what's the point of a joke? And how do I hit the exact line that I need to hit? How do I make the emphasis on exactly the right word so much faster than anyone else I've ever seen? And that ability to dissect something complicated, figure out the most important part of it, and then execute on that task, um, that's part of what made him an effective president, not with the jokes, but with everything else that he did. So so describe what was it like, just just describe – being in the White House, being in the speechwriters group. I mean, you're with a, a, you know, a group of folks, many of whom have gone on to do, you know, nothing significant. And of course, I'm thinking about uh, John Favreau and John Lovett and Tommy Vitor. And uh, I guess Vitor wasn't in the speechwriters group, but, uh, you know, a bunch of guys who, who really, you know, men and women who really haven't been able to go on and do anything else post uh, uh, their Barack Obama years. Uh, it, what, what was it like, uh, you know, in that club? And, and with that group, Cody, uh, tell me about uh, what, what was the vibe like in there? Well, it's funny. When I, in 2011, when I was 24 and I first started going to speechwriting meetings, that's when I got my, my White House job for the first time. Uh, John Favreau was the chief speechwriter and John Lovett was still working in the White House. And he was sort of our token funny person. And so I'd go to these meetings and sit in the back and be like, man, these guys are like smart and funny and they're like, they just have, they talk about politics in this way that I've like, I've always wanted to hear. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years and they have this podcast and it's like watching the rest of the United States sort of have the same moment I did when I was 24. So it's been fun to see that. And it is, I mean, I was very lucky to work with a group of people, um, you know, both the chief speechwriters, John Favreau and then Cody Keenan, but also all of my colleagues who were uh, you know, made up the rest of the speech writing team. It was a really good group of people where you just have thoughtful, curious, funny people. And that, you know, working in the White House is special, but working with that kind of group, that was special too. Now, when you're writing and you're writing that the the jokes and, and, and the other stuff as well, um, are you writing for an audience of one or are you writing for 350, 400 million? I think the challenge of writing for president is you're always writing for many audiences at the same time. So as a speechwriter, your first audience is the president. You need him to like the work. But then you're also writing for the people in the room. And that could be 100 CEOs at a business meeting or it could be, you know, 2000 Hollywood celebrities and journalists at one of these correspondence dinners or anywhere in between. And then you're also writing for everyone in the United States and the world, because anything the president says has that weight to it. 
And that's something I wish the current administration understood. You get the feeling they'll speak sometimes to the people in the room or at the rally, but they forget the rest of us are here and we're still watching. And so that's part of the, uh, the challenge of writing for president. And also you're writing not just for that specific moment, but you know that in some tiny way, this is going to be part of the record. So you're writing for a moment in time and also you're trying to think about um, what things will look like in the long term. You mentioned the current administration. I don't know if you know this, but uh, Donald Trump is the Captain Von Trapp of uh, Commanders in Chief. You know, <laughs> uh, I have heard that. I, I uh, you know, a wise man wrote that. Yeah, um, I should say I am a huge musical theater fan. Uh, my my biggest regret at the White House was that when Stephen Sondheim came to receive his Medal of Freedom, I was not there to uh, to meet him in person. So um, I, I was able to sneak a Captain Von Trapp joke into the New York Times op-ed section recently, and uh, I, that made me very happy. I don't know how much readers enjoyed it, but uh, it, it was it was it was my birthday when that ran. So that was my birthday present to myself. Yeah, well, ha- happy birthday! I did like it, and and it, the only thing I didn't like about it was you wrote about the topic. It was actually one of the questions that I had, you know, kind of you know that I was thinking about for you. Um, why does it matter? Why, why, you know, why does humor, I was, you know, I was, I was first was going to ask you, you know, have you seen or heard anything funny? I mean, you know, uh, Rocket Man, that's got to be a line that you really wish you had, uh, you know, you had got captured that one. Um, yeah. So, so first kind of on the silly front, have you seen or heard anything funny? Is there anything where you actually have kind of laughed and thought, boy, that was, you know, okay, that's clever stuff. And, and then secondly, why does, why does it matter? Why, what, what role does, does humor play? Why, you know, why does it matter? Does a president need to, to be funny? Well, it's strange. You bring up Rocket Man and, uh, you know, I guess President Trump's nickname for Kim Jong-un that's what and we think, yeah. it, one would think, who knows? But the the brightest line we had that we did not cross when I was at the White House, we did not joke about anything involving national security. We treated that seriously. Even if we thought we could get away with it at the time, we knew that you never know what's going to happen tomorrow or the week after. So it is pretty remarkable to watch President Trump in as much as there's a rule book for how to be a president. Uh, you know, how to be a good president. He just manages to do the opposite consistently. It's it's almost as if he is doing it intentionally. Um, I will say, and I did write about this, it's not that President Trump doesn't have a sense of timing. I mean, he's an entertainer. He was a TV star before he was a president. Yeah. The thing about it is he only uses his timing to insult people or to belittle people. Mostly it's about establishing that he's the powerful one and whoever the target of the joke is, is never going to be as powerful as he is, which is not a good trait on a 12-year-old in a playground. Uh, it's a really bad trait in the president of the United States. So let's talk a little bit about the connection. To, or I'll phrase it differently. At the beginning of the book, um, you describe the energy and excitement of your first Obama rally and, and Obama rallies. I mean, hearing the USA and the US, USA and yes, we can. You talk about, you know, the, the, you know, how patriotism had kind of been, you know, taken, if you will, taken in quotes, uh, by, you know, George W. Bush and, and by the Republicans. And, and you felt really good, um, that that was part of the movement that you were becoming a part of. Um, as I was reading that, the the energy, and maybe it's just the time, maybe you know the the, the lens that we're looking at everything through now. Um, the energy 
sounded like, felt like a lot of what I've seen, what we've all seen on Trump rallies. And even the cadence, I was thinking about, yes, we can and lock her up. And and I mean, obviously, such different meaning. I mean, different in, in just about every way. Um, yeah, but those did, are different. Yeah, they're they're pretty different, but the the cadence of them and and the way and and the way they you know I mean those were the calling you know cards and 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 cries for those crowds. Do, do you ever feel the? Do you ever think about that the the connection? Um, you know, you you uh, do you ever think about the connection between the the energy and the power of the rallies? I mean, you know, maybe they're on on you know opposite sides of the force field, but um, do you ever think about the connections between the energy and emotion of Obama rallies uh, versus or and uh, those of the Trump rallies? No, I mean, I think they're totally different. I think energy and emotion and, and uh, enthusiasm can be good or it can be bad, and it depends on the way it's it's deployed. I mean, I think. I genuinely believe that Trumpism, as opposed to Republicanism, but Trumpism really is a cancer on democracy. And in the same way that cancer sort of exploits healthy cells, uh, I think that Trumpism is very similar in how it uses things that we have generally thought of in our political life as positive or at least neutral. Uh, I think when it comes to the enthusiasm and the energy in those rallies I write about, the most important thing is that they were inclusive. That everybody in when we said, yes, we can, we were not just talking about the people in the room. We were talking about everybody. We were talking about an America. It's easy to forget because politics is so broken right now. But when President Obama ran in 2008 and he tried to do this again and again, his vision was we have good ideas in both parties. How do we make sure that we're Americans first and not Democrats for Republicans? And that's the opposite of what you see at Trump rallies where people – it's, you, you brought up the locker up chant, right? It's not about unity. It's about attacking the people you see as the other. And in this case, the other is just people who disagree with you politically. So in that way, they, they're almost polar opposites, um, you know, the, the enthusiastic chanting aside. And, and obviously it, it, they are. And I, you know, the, uh, the differences in uh, the power of and the, the intention behind Yes, We Can versus uh, locker up, as you just described, um, you know, really just. It couldn't be more different. It also just struck me as you were talking the the you know good ideas on great ideas, good ideas. I don't know if I forget exactly what you just said a moment ago on both sides, and think about how you know Trump's use of President Trump's use of uh, you know great people on both sides or fine people on both sides. How the same words can now carry such uh, incredibly different meaning. And, uh, um, you know, a, a lot of what, uh, you know, that, that power and, and that inclusion that you describe and felt and that motivated you, I guess you were, you were 21 at the time. Is that right? When you, uh, uh, you know, first kind of joined up with, uh, the Obama campaign and, and all of that. Um, yeah, I was 21 years old when I kind of, uh, fell in love politically, at least with, with Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Such, uh, so, so different. Did you see the Michael Moore line? I think, I think it was Michael Moore is a couple months ago where he, he wrote, I think it was a tweet, but he may have said, oh, he's also said it. I've seen him see it on, I've seen him uh, say it on TV that, um, he thinks that humor is going to be the, uh, antidote to President Trump. Have you seen that from Michael Moore? I think it was Michael Moore. And, uh, what do you think about that? Sorry, I missed, missed that. He said, who's going to be the antidote? Humor. Humor. Comedy. Oh. I, I think – I'm pretty sure it was a Michael Moore line. I, I, I could have that wrong, but I think it was um, – I think he was saying that, uh, you know, we, we just – we need to go to comedy. 
Um, I could have the person wrong, but but I remember seeing that point. No, I mean, I totally disagree with that. I think that comedy has a role to play, and uh, hopefully I'm helping to play it, whether it's with a sort of funny book or a my job at Funny or Die right now or whatever. But the way the antidote or the antidote to Trumpism is politics. It's we have to organize. Uh, if you don't like Trump and what he stands for, there's still a political system as broken as it is that we can mobilize within. And if you look, I mean, if you look at Trump right now, he's unpopular. So if the 60 percent of the country who doesn't like Trump voted against the people in Congress who support him, we would have a different Congress and we would start to have investigations into some of the unethical and almost certainly illegal behavior we're seeing. And we would make sure we wouldn't have this fight over and over again of are we going to rob 20 million people of their health insurance just basically out of spite. So one of the things that I think progressives can't do is give up on politics. We need to make politics work better because it's not working the way it's supposed to. But the idea that we should turn to comedy instead of politics, if we're going to have the conservative movement using all the levers of political power, but on the left, on the progressive movement, we're just telling jokes, we're not going to win that fight. Yeah. And to be fair, I, I mean, I, I got to find the exact line. It, it, <laughs> the, the intent wasn't exactly that, you know, turn to comedy and let's just laugh it all off. I think that <laughs> I think the point was that it was the power of comedy and the power of humor to unmask yeah. and reveal and that that was going to be a core um, element. I, I, you know, if I, I well, and I, I certainly think that satire has. Yeah, maybe it's more satire <laughs> that that may sure. have even been that, the term. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely think that there's um, the line that I think is important to draw is between saying satire has a role to play and satire will save us. Um, satire is not going to save us, but it does have an important role. Satire, I think, is a way of standing up for the truth and demanding that we investigate the truth at a time when the White House talks about alternative facts. Yeah. And that is something that comedians can do now. And, and we should not be put in this position where comedians are the ones upholding our most cherished values. I mean, that's a weird comedians should be telling fart jokes like that's that's the world we ought to be living in. But this is where we're at. And I think it is to the credit of a lot of people in the comedy community that they're saying, OK, this is not why we got into comedy, but we're we're going to do it. We're going to answer the call. So we, we can't rely on we shouldn't we shouldn't be relying on comedians as the first line of defense in the resistance. And no, not at all. I think that uh, you know comedy has comedy is a part of the resistance, but comedy is not going to be the most powerful tool of resistance. It's just going to be one of many. So there was a question that the Pod Saves guys had a couple of weeks ago, um, a, a pollster on Democratic pollster, and it was a really, really interesting conversation. They asked him, I forget who, who it was, but they asked him, do you understand um, the Obama voters who became Trump voters? And his answer actually was yes. Um, but but do you, uh, before I reveal, uh, you may have heard the, the episode, but, um, but before I get to what his answer was, do you have a thought about that? And some of it hit me because when you describe it was at the beginning of the book, uh, the woman, Lisa, who had been laid off from three manufacturing jobs in four years. I think it was in Ohio where you had worked um, that a, a person being laid off from three manufacturing jobs in four years. And that was in 2008, I think um, that sounds like a 
Trump voter. That sounds like, you know, the, this description, Ohio, manufacturing, dead, no jobs, et cetera. Um, do, do you understand the Obama voters who became Trump voters? I do, but I don't think it's as simple as saying people's economic situation hadn't improved because compared to 2008, most of those voters were doing better economically than they were, uh, you know, it, it, by 2016. I think that to, I always think that in politics, the number one question in election is which candidate is going to be fighting for people like me when they're making tough decisions. And that's a totally legitimate question to ask. And I think for a variety of reasons, uh, the waters got really muddied in this election. And you had people saying, I mean, I, 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 who was it, Edward Snowden tweeting that this election is a choice between uh, Donald Trump and Goldman Sachs. And uh, now Trump won and Goldman Sachs basically has, you know, uh, unlimited seats at the table in the White House. There was this misconception that the person who was standing up for the powerful was Hillary Clinton and the Democrats, um, when I think what we're clearly seeing is Trump ran as somebody who has always done well and done even better by taking advantage of people who aren't as powerful as he is. And that's continuing in the White House. It's just now becoming part of government policy. How are you going to tell me what someone who actually knows something about the issue uh, said? So tell me that. One of the issues I did want to talk about, it's not even an issue. It, it was um, you. And what really came across uh, to me is in my reading of this, and um, on some level surprised me, but really, really, really um, thrilled me. And that was uh, kind of almost a complete lack of cynicism about the process, about serving in government, about the role that it can play. I mean, your line at the end, um, choose service instead. And I started to think about, you know, so much comedy, uh, you know, and I'm a, you know, I'm a lay person on comedy. Uh, you know, I, I, I tell jokes in my house, but, you know, it doesn't go far beyond that. But, it, you know, sometimes it feels like so often the comedy gets based on cynicism, a cynical view of the world or a cynical view of some situation, and that becomes a real core for humor and something to and, – and that doesn't feel like who you are. And so, one, did I – you know, did that, – that's what – you know, if that's not who you are, then, then you know, you, you faked it really well. And, and two, do you ever think about that, the, you know, the, the, the relationship, you know, having a – not having cynicism and yet having the ability to deliver comedy? Yeah, I think comedy is about skepticism more than cynicism. Mm. I think that comedy is about it, – it's a good field for people with doubt. And you will see when you read the book, as you did, I have plenty of self-doubt and plenty of moments when I wondered, am I ever going to be able to do a job like this? Am I the right person for this sort of thing? Um, there's moments when I had doubt that this political movement I was a part of was time well spent. Um, but I think what's important is – to figure out how can you have doubt and still believe in something important, something big. And humor can be a tool for that. Humor can be a tool for cynicism, but humor can also be a way of acknowledging doubt and addressing absurdity while at the same time having some faith. And, and that's what I talk about at the end of the book. And it's, um, you know, a spoiler alert, uh, but I guess <laughs> I wanted to talk about what it takes to be disillusioned, just like we all are, but to nonetheless believe. And uh, to me, that was an important thing that I learned from my time at the White House. And hopefully it's something important that readers take away from the book. Do you know if uh, President Obama has seen the book or read it? 
Uh, I don't know. People who uh, work for him have, but I don't know that he's he's seen it. He remains a busy guy despite no longer being present. <laughs> I, I would just I would be thinking that he'd put it all aside and uh, you know think about uh, his hopey changey years at the White House. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, uh, but you know, obviously it, it's funny. You always, of course, you write a book about uh, a figure in this case a president who changed your life, and you obviously would want them to read it, but. I also, as much as that, want the next generation of young people who work in the White House to read the book. I mean, to me, the highest compliment beyond all of your listeners running out and immediately buying 10 copies, of course, uh, would be if 10 years from now somebody says, hey, I'm a 25-year-old speechwriter in the next Democratic administration, and I don't feel quite so alone and so scared in my job um, because I read your book back in the day. Yeah, that would be awesome. I bet that would feel awesome. And, and for someone like you, who it really does come, ac- come across clearly, um, you believe, you, you believe in, in service and you believe in what you were doing and, and you believe in the power of what it can do. Um, and I bet, I, I, I believe that. I bet that would mean a great deal to you. Um, David, thank you. Thank you for your time. And, uh, the book's a great read. There's, I mean, the, the stories and the anecdotes and, and, uh, um, it was just a lot of fun. So uh, thank you for your time and uh, thanks for, for writing the book and giving all of us a little window into uh, uh, a speechwriter's memoir. Thank you so much. This has really been uh, such a pleasure. That was my conversation with David Litt. What a great combination. Really thoughtful, very funny, no cynicism. Go pick up his book. You'll like it. My thanks to David for his time and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you again soon. Thank you.